Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning on this June Sunday. So glad that you've joined us. Way too often, Ruth is just uh, relegated as a book that is covered in women's Bible studies and women's retreats. And as Steve Elworth liked to joke, and with lots of tissues. It's a love story. It contains uh, a beautiful love story between a man and a woman, but it's really a love story between God and his people. Uh, actually, some of the women in our church were in this book this past semester. And so I went to them and said, hey, if we do this again over the summer, would, would that be a repeat? And they're like, no, no, right, go right ahead. And so here we are. But if you've not read the book of Ruth, I think that you will enjoy it. It's just a great story of God's faithfulness, his love, his kindness. Uh, but why now and why over the summer? Well, let me ask you to consider the environment that we're all living in for just a minute. The economy is feeling a little crazy. Uh, prices, and whether it's houses or eggs, are crazy high, and everything is expensive. I was with my son uh, um, in Colorado Springs a couple weeks ago, and he needed some things for his yard, so we went to Ace Hardware. I had a figure in my mind, you know, uh, let me just pay for that. It was a different figure than the one I left with. It was a lot more, right? In many measurements, we're past the pandemic, right? We've come to the close of it, finally. And yet, we all live with the reality that life is really fragile. And for some, maybe that are younger in the room, we have been made aware for the first time, hey, we're not in control of a lot of things. Um, and that's just a great reminder. We have another election cycle coming. Yes, and there's a long sigh because it's so contentious. Whether it's in your families, in your marriage, even in churches. And so it's just kind of like, oh, technology is growing like crazy. Um, how many people have uh, experimented with chat GDP? Let's just come on. Don't be bashful. Yeah, writes beautifully, but errantly. Just ask it for any history and it won't be right. Yeah, but they put that footnote. Some people just like me, I'm an early adopter for technology, thrilled about it. Other people are like terrified you know, war of the world, something, you know, big brother, it's just going to be a mess. So this is all going on around us. And it's really causing all of us to have a similar conversation. And how are we to behave? How are we to live? What are we supposed to do? I think um, for Christians, the bigger question is, how am I to follow God amidst all of this? Because when you stitch all of this together and there's nothing kind of holding it, there's no common theme, there's nothing running across that kind of unifies it, it begins to feel like chaos. And how are we to embrace it? I was out west and visiting some friends and family, and I was on an airplane by myself from Bozeman to New Orleans. It was actually Denver to New Orleans. I sat, I was flying southwest, so I hadn't had the road to myself. The plane's not going to be full if you fly southwest. It's open seating. I was kind of excited. A guy sat over here, uh, and there was a space between us. I'm still feeling pretty good. There's, you know, I've got my elbow room because, you know, I've got long legs and all that. And then she sat down, and her husband sat behind her. 
man, Miss Effervescent, Miss Chatty Cathy, Miss I Can Sell You Anything sat between us. She was a lot of fun. She had a couple glasses of champagne. It's just a two-hour flight. Why not? Um, <clears throat> I had a cup of coffee, managed to spill it on her. Um, but because she was there and was a buffer, I'm in Louisiana, she's from California, he's from California, and we start talking. And the stewardess who's sitting in the jump seat in front of us is listening because she joined the conversation later. It didn't blow up. It didn't go off the rails. It didn't do any of that. You know what we were talking about? How to make sense of what we're living in. It's on everybody's mind. About, about 17 minutes into the flight, she says to me, well, Kevin, what do you do? And I said, well, Rachel, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, my God. She was actually delightful. She followed it up with a clarifying question. Are you born again? Not really. It felt like she wasn't really familiar with the term. And I said, yes, I am. I am. She goes, so is my daughter. So is my daughter. I said, how are you doing with that? She goes, I'm learning a lot. We're very different. The point of the story is it was, one, it was delightful. Two, all three of us were going, how do we make sense of this Inner Ruth, Ruth, her person and story are a great example for a Christian of what daily obedience looks like in a chaotic world. So <clears throat> we're starting Ruth, but today we're just going to give you an overview. We're going to give you the context that Ruth is written in and some principles there and some themes to look at. The only text of Ruth that we'll look at is the first prepositional phrase. And this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, that's it. That gives us a historical context, judges. It gives us a literary context, the book of Judges, which precedes Ruth. It gives us a canonical, if you will, big word meaning where in the Bible is the book of Ruth. It's right after Judges in the English Bible. It's one of two books written and titled for women, the other one being Esther, and it's really quite good. So Judges is going to help us get the context of what's going on in Ruth. And the last verse of Judges helps us understand. Here's what it says. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. We live in an age, of course, that's marked by significant, radical shifts in social norms. There are a few more gray hairs in the room today. I applaud you. Way to go. The amount of change that's happened in the past 30 years is significant. The last 50 years is very significant. The last 60, it's just mind-blowing. And what it's led to is... Um, extreme individualism. And what extreme individualism leads to is the idea that we determine all things. We are the center and we determine them. And so it begins to feel like everyone is doing as they see fit and promoting that. So while we live in the same atmosphere of the economy, of the politics, as Christians, the atmosphere for us has changed pretty significantly. Following Christ openly and outwardly is becoming more and more difficult. 
particularly if you're young. I was talking to one of our college students who says, I'm openly ridiculed at work. And the reason for that is she's young. She's young and can be ridiculed at work. And she said, it's really hard. I said, yes, it is. And when you, when you are ridiculed, when you are labeled, when you are given names that are negative, and the things that you hold dear and the priorities that you have as a follower of Jesus are marginalized, guess what gets really difficult? Daily obedience. What happens to, to many of us is we retreat. We retreat into the privacy of our life and public obedience is no longer, and we don't, we just kind of, it's not, a, not available. So daily obedience when, when the world seems to not just be different, but also aggressive can be really hard. There's another thing that happens when this happens. When you're deeply challenged about what you believe, too many of us don't have a foundation for what we believe. Are our foundations weak? And so when it's challenged, it crumbles. We watch this happen with young students as they come to LSU and their professors openly challenge their faith system. And they're like, I don't know how to answer that. And so if you've had your faith system challenged, if you yourself are challenged, then you can go, you know what? I don't really know anymore. And it's hard to be enthusiastically, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to be, I'm going to practice daily obedience when I don't really know the foundation of my faith. And another, one more thing that makes daily obedience really difficult is loss. If you've lost a boyfriend or a girlfriend and your heart is broken, you can just be in the doldrums. If you've lost a marriage, if you've lost children to drugs or death or waywardness, it just kind of wears on you. If you've endured natural disaster, you lost your home in a hurricane twice, you know, hurricane season started. So these things are, all of these, all of these things go on in the book of Ruth. And what we see played out is her living in daily obedience. We see God's love for his children and his faithfulness to them. And although our daily obedience in, in following the Lord, we may not ever see how it's played out. We may not be able to see, hey, I did what the Lord asked me to do today, and I don't know what impact it had. But with Ruth, we get to see behind the scenes. The book of Ruth ends with this little phrase. It gives us a glimpse because we don't always get it. It's just a hint. Here's the way it ends. The women living there said, it's a group of women. So let me give you Ruth in a nutshell. Naomi and her husband leave with their sons to go to Moab to, to run from a famine. While they're there as sojourners in a foreign land trying to survive a famine, he dies and both boys die. But they meet and marry women there. So it's Ruth, a widow, and two daughter-in-laws that are widow. Naomi has to go back home and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, I want to go with you. They go back. They meet somebody in the family that falls in love with Ruth, marries her, and restores the family line. That's Ruth in a nutshell. It's a great story. We'll look at it. But here's how it ends. It says this, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son, speaking of a grandson. So not only is there love in a marriage, there's a child. Naomi has a son and they named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David. And we get this glimpse. We get this little glimpse 
that what looked like was disaster, no, no one's going to carry on the family name. Ruth and her daily obedience leads to restoring the family line. That family line has in it King David. That family line has in it King Jesus. And we're like, woo. Matthew chapter 1 names some amazing women that are not Jewish, that are critical to the story of Jesus coming to this earth. It says Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We'll talk about that. Rahab had been a prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed, as we just read in Ruth, whose his mother was Ruth, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then it goes on for more verses, and it ends with Jesus. We don't get to see that, but daily obedience is something that God can bless. He can bless it and he can use it however he sees fit, large ways and small ways. In Ruth's life, it's pretty amazing. So back to the context, let's go back to that last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw fit. That last verse gives us the, the, his, the context of the word everyone. It's talking about Israel and the fact that there was no central leader. <clears throat> and everyone is doing what they see fit. So Abraham is called. He has sons. They have, we've looked at that in the book of Genesis. They go to Egypt as a people and are rescued by Joseph. They live in Egypt. They multiply into millions. They become slaves of the Egyptians for 400 years. Then God sends Moses to bring them out. If you're reading in the Bible reading plan with us, we just were in Exodus. He brings them out. He brings them into the promised land. They complain, they complain, they complain. And God said, okay, I've had it. You're going to wander around in the desert till this complaining generation dies off. Then you'll go into the promised land. They go under Joshua. And their command is real simple. Go and occupy the land that I'm giving you. Go and possess it. And so here's what I need you to know. That everyone that's doing whatever they want are the Israelites. They're not the Moabites. They're not the Canaanites. They're not the Hittites. They're not all those people. And sometimes we can get so worked up as Christians that the world around us is going crazy that we want to attack it rather than be more critical of ourselves. Jesus said, hey, before you judge your brother, work on that big stick, that plank that's in your eye. Get that out of the way. Then you can deal with the dust in your, in your sister's eye. <coughs> so I'm just challenging us. The correlation here is Christians. Not just the culture at large. It's Christians just doing whatever they want. They've abandoned the Bible and sound doctrine. And it's happening all around us. Excuse me, we cough for a minute. I'm a rookie when it comes to water. You know how you have a cough and then you drink water real fast and it goes down the wrong pipe and you keep coughing because now you've made it worse? That's what just happened. If, you're, um, if you read the Baton Rouge paper last weekend, there was a whole section, a whole, the whole lead story was a denomination in our state that's dividing over issues where some of the church wants to embrace more. Okay, 
what the culture's saying and not what the, what the Bible's saying. So I, I want you to understand who the everybody is. So what happened? What led to the conquering, uh, Joshua conquering to 300, 350 years of dark ages? What happened? <clears throat> People forgot the Lord. Chapter two of Judges says this. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, the whole generation that went in to occupy the land died. Another generation grew up that neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the, the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods and people uh, of the peoples around them, and they aroused the Lord's anger. Uh-oh, Mary's moving. My wife's on it. She's like, he does this at night. He coughs till the whole house is awake and the dogs are barking. Yeah. I'm trying. I came prepared. And she's like, no, you didn't. You should have mints up there, not coffee. And I can't bring, you know, a whole pharmacy up here. I want to make an overstatement. Oh, my Joanna. Thank you, dear. My whole family's coming to the rescue. Um <clears throat> Uh, I want, here's what I want to make. I want to make an overstatement. Okay? Our faith is one generation from ex extinction. Our faith is one generation from extinction. If we do not have a faith that's vibrant and real, and we don't talk about what the Lord is doing and how we're following Him and how, how awesome He is and how, how we've been blessed, then your children never hear about it. Never hear about it at all. And we've seen this in, during COVID. Thousands and thousands of people have left church. You're not them, you're here. But let me encourage you, if you know them, ask them to come back. Invite them to come back. 20% of the people that are still in church attend less than they used to before COVID. 7% is what the Pew Research says has just quit coming back to church. Now, church isn't mandatory for salvation. I'm not saying that. It's just an indication. I want to be around the people of God. I want to be around people that are going to call me up. I need you. I need you. You need me. We need each other. If church attendance becomes an option for parents, it's often irrelevant to their children. Now, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I am. I've been doing this for three decades. Three decades, which is amazing. But this is what I've seen. Families who have their children in church, chapel kids, chapel youth, with, with regularity, then their faith is transferred generation to generation. Children watch. They're not dumb. They're very perceptive. They can tell the difference between a parent that's going through the motion and a parent who has a conviction. It's not, I'm not saying it's ironclad just because you're in church every Sunday, your kids will be. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the families that I've seen where church is a part of their world, and I'm not just talking about church, I'm talking about the community of faith, which we'll get to. It's really, really important. Thank you, sweetie. Look, more mints. Okay. Sorry, y'all. I hate this. I try not to do it, but when you talk all morning, 
it's bound to go bad. With many words, well, never mind. Um, so so um, that's, I need you to see that. I need you to see that in the context of Judges because it's different in Ruth. We see a, an emerging generation. We see a mother-in-law whose conviction was strong enough that her daughter-in-law wanted to follow along. So a note to mother-in-laws. Don't ever underestimate your influence. A note to father-in-laws. Don't ever underestimate your influence. So what happened? Why did there was such a deterioration from, from Joshua to Judges? Because they just wouldn't follow through and do what God asked them to do. Obedience to God is about persevering. You have to continue at it, and they quit. They either became discouraged or they just began to doubt. They forgot that God had guaranteed them a victory if they would just stay in the game. And so here's our second point of the context. We must persevere in obedience. We must persevere. The nation of Israel did not persevere. They didn't do it. They did not persevere. The opposite is true in Ruth. There's this constant Little by little, steps of obedience. So a hard question, let me ask you. Have you ever stopped or not finished what God had asked you to do? In your spiritual life. You really, you read in the Bible that you need to forgive somebody and you felt a strong conviction that I needed to forgive this person in my life, but you refused to do it. Have you forgotten that God will be with you to secure spiritual victory in your life? One writer said it this way, Israel does not drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. They didn't finish what they were commanded to do. Instead of removing the moral cancer spread by the inhabitants of Canaan, they contracted the disease. And that's what happens to us. It rubs off on us. They became complacent. And with that complacency became, then led to apostasy. I'm a little casual here, and the next thing I know, I'm walking away. So where have you become complacent in your faith? Where have you begun to say, Jesus, you just don't have access to this area of my life? And that area just gets bigger and bigger. Where have we as a church in America become complacent and just pursuing Jesus we should not be surprised that the places that we become complacent become the places where apostasy, where we tend to walk away. So there's this cycle of deliverance throughout the book of Judges, seven of them, where the people rebel and God restores. Here's what happens. They rebel and sin. They get caught up in that rebellion, retribution. They repent because there's no way out. They're restored by a gracious God and they find rest in him. If you've ever had seasons in your life of rebellion, then you know exactly what's talking about. A season can be a period of time, like the next semester of college, the first semester of college. I just said fooey on it all and I did whatever I wanted. We have so many stories of students that, that regret that, particularly the Christians who go, I don't know what happened, I just went crazy. And now all of those decisions came back and they bit me. They enslaved me. And I, at that point, all I was left to do was cry out to God, but in his grace, he restored me. And then I finally found the rest that I wanted. Those are seasons, semesters, 
But even if you're not in school, you can have areas of your life where you have these little moments of rebellion. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, in this area of my life, with this person in my life, I'm not gonna act like a Christian. <laughs> I'm just gonna rebel. And before you know it, the anger, the bitterness, whatever it is in there, gets a hold of you. And before you know that, you're no longer in charge of it and you've gotta repent so that you can find restoration and so that you can find rest. Rest. Now, I don't know where it is in your life, but the entire nation, not just individuals, the entire nation turned away from God. How does that happen? Well, it happens rather easily, frankly. When we together don't pay attention, boom, it happens. So here's our next thing out of the context of Judges. We are influenced by those with whom we associate. It's an old axiom. It's pretty straightforward. The Apostle Paul wrote an entire chapter over the, 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 the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's fundamental to Christianity. How could people begin to doubt it? Because the people around them had begun to doubt it. And so in that chapter, he says this, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Have you ever been caught up in bad groupthink? Let me answer the question for you. Yes. Yes, we have. Not yes, you have. Yes, we have. We live in a culture that is cre creating huge echo chambers for whatever it is we want to hear. We have access to news media outlets that we determine. And before you know it, you can, be found, you can find yourself influenced by the world around you more than the God who saved you. It happens so easily. Parents, please consider what is vying for your children's attention. Please take more scrutiny over the screen. What we give our attention to, we become. And some of us start our day in news feeds and end our day in news feeds. You need to take a long break from that. Only for this reason, to realize how toxic it is and how often it's unbiblical in every regard. In every regard. Those are strong statements, I know. But let me challenge you to try it and come back with some, some reasonableness. And then the book of Judges ends with these two horrible stories of a man that hires his own private priest. He's reduced his religion to that which is manageable. And then the last one is of a Levite of the priestly line who has a concubine who is raped. These are R-rated stories. She's raped and then he mutilates her and sends her parts of her body to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how bad things are. This is the condition in which Ruth emerges. Judges 19, everyone saw at this mutilation and said to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. No one did. And right after those two illustrations, we have Ruth. And she is a breath of fresh air. 
we see an illustration of godliness, a love story between a man and a woman, between God and his people. So let me give you some themes in Ruth that I want you to see play out over and over and over again. The first one is this, God is loving, sovereign, and kind. In a church, that's what you'd expect. If you've grown up in church, you're like, yeah. But if we understood his sovereignty, that means he said he's, he's doing something that's beyond our comprehension, that's for his glory and our good. That should allow us to relax. He's loving. Well, of course he's loving. God is love. But is he kind? When life is really hard, that's where we begin to say, can I trust him? Is he kind? Naomi lost her husband. She was um, a sojourner in a foreign land trying to survive a uh, famine. Her sons marry, and then they both die. She concludes at that point that God is withholding from her. And if you've ever experienced that kind of loss, these ideas enter your mind. She says to her daughter-in-laws, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. That's what the word means. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Is that really what he's done? That's what she feels. Those are harsh words. Those are honest words. Maybe those are the kinds of words that you need to speak to the Lord. He can handle it because it's usually not what he's done. He's been so kind and continues to show kindness to Naomi. By the time the story ends, her daughter-in-law is remarried. Her family line continues. They conceive and have a child, and it is a reveal party and a wonderful time. The kindness of God. It translates the Hebrew word chesed. It's just such an important word. It means the ever-loving, never-ending, covenant-keeping love of God. It's used three times in the book, and it's always used as somebody saying, God, would you show your kindness to this person? Would you show your kindness here? And so the story ends with the women around Naomi saying this, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, without a kinsman redeemer, without somebody in your family to carry on your family line. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. He's an awesome guy. And not only that, your daughter-in-law loves you, who, has, uh, who is better than, to you than seven sons has given birth to this grandson of yours. The story is totally different by the end. Second theme, this is important, godly blesses daily obedience. The day-to-day -day obedience. Now, one of the interesting things about Ruth is she is from Moab. The Moabites were enemies of Israel. They were mean to them. They were awful. They, they hired a prophet to go and curse Israel, so they wouldn't prof, uh, prosper. His name was uh, Balaam. And he went to, to curse them, and God stopped them and the donkey he was on. It's all in Numbers 22, 23, 24, where the donkey actually talks. Donkey? It's an amazing story. Predates uh, uh, Shrek. Um, yeah, that's who I was trying to sound like. <laughs> Somebody was, yeah. It predates all of that. 
God turns it around and blesses them, but the Moabites also seduce Israel and cause the whole nation to worship their gods. Their gods. It's so bad that in Deuteronomy, God says to the people, no Amorite, no Moabite, nor any of the descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water when you came out of the land of Egypt. When all the million people were coming out of Egypt, they went through Moab and they stopped and said, hey, could we get some gas, some air in our tires, some snacks and some water for our camels? And they said, no, you may not. They hired Balaam, the prophet, the son of Beor, from Pithior, Amron, Naharaim, to uh, pronounce a curse. But the Lord says, however, the Lord your God did not listen to Balaam, but turned his curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty or friendship with them as long as you live. So it would seem like daily obedience would be don't mess with Moabites. But God in his grace, God in his grace does something amazing. He uses Ruth. What did Ruth do? Ruth did something very difficult. She turned her back on the gods of her nation, on her family. And when the famine was over and Naomi was going to go back home, Ruth said, I'm going to go with you. No, he says, you're young, get remarried, don't, I mean, even if I have another son, by the time he's old enough to marry you, you're going to be too old, stay here. The most famous words out of the book of Ruth, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go, where, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And I'll be, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. In other words, when you go, I want to go. Then Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. Ruth's obedience. Here's what you need to know. Ruth is being obedient to Naomi and to God, and she doesn't understand some of what she's doing. It doesn't seem to fit her worldview. Oftentimes, Christians are asked to do things that are contrary to the world around them, particularly loving those that hate them. But that's a, that's a big story. But you see Ruth constantly doing, being obedient, and the fruit of that obedience isn't always evident. And when we read the Old Testament, we read about amazing people like Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and David, and we think, man, they're out of my league. Well, Ruth is in your league. She's an everyday person. She's a Gentile foreigner widow who chooses to be obedient to the God of her mother-in-law and God blesses it. Here's another theme you need to see. God gives us a faith family. In our common church language today, we'd call it a, a community of faith, but this is, this is faith. Ruth could not no longer stand up to what was going on around her than you and I could if she didn't have her mother-in-law. Neither one of them could have accomplished what they would, would end up accomplishing if it hadn't been for Boaz and his kindness and his grace. We need each other. This is why we're always asking people to consider joining a community group. It will force you to move toward community. We always want community to find us. But we need to go find it and submit to it and say, I'm gonna be with you because I need somebody to call me up I need somebody to call me out. I need, I need your help. 
the stream of, of the current of life that's going through our, our, our world right now will sweep you off your feet if you don't have help. I like to fly fish. I have a brother that lives in Montana. Yeah. It's so awesome. He took me to the, uh, to the Platte River. I mean, uh, to the, um, that's not the Platte. The Flathead. He took me to the Flathead River, the western fork of it. And I was so excited. I could see this fish. I hadn't caught any fish all day. He had been out catching me a little competitive. And there it was. And I'm like, oh, it's so awesome. So I just kept walking out into the river until it got so deep. And it, the current was so strong. We were there a little early in the season. I was afraid if I took one more step, I'd be swept away. Now, I wasn't going to die or anything, but I'd probably lose my rod. I wouldn't catch the fish, and it would be thoroughly embarrassing. So I yelled to my brother-in-law, hey, Doug, I can't move. He goes, don't move. Don't move. I'll, we'll come out and get you. So he starts out into the water, and he tries to reach for me. He goes, you know what? It's a little far. Hey, he calls his son. Sam, come here. He holds Sam. Sam lets him go a little more. He grabs me, and we all come back out. We need each other. God has given us a family of faith. If you're just trying to live in this chaotic world all by yourself and you find yourself swept away in the current, I understand. We need each other. If you're not in a community group, let me encourage you. Last thing I want you to see, and we'll see it over and over and over again, because the story of Ruth is a story of redemption. Redemption is costly. It's costly. First thing you need to know is that redemption is, is for those in trouble. If you're not in trouble, you don't need redemption. But if you are in trouble and there's no way out, then you need somebody from the outside to come in. That's what Boaz did. Ruth and Naomi were totally helpless without Boaz being their redeemer. Redemption is, a, is costly for the redeemer, for the person who does the redemption. Boaz was not first in line, as we'll discover as we study the book of Ruth. It was the responsibility of someone else in their family. And so Boaz went to that person and said, hey, listen, would you like to be the redeemer of this family and continue their family line? And that person said, what's it going to cost me? Oh, it's going to cost you this and this and this. There's a little money to pay. Plus, you'll need to marry the Moabitess, Ruth. Now, Boaz was already in love with Ruth, so he was playing, right? He was just sitting there going, say no, say no. And that's what he did. The first person said, no, no, that's too much. And Boaz said, yes, I'm going to marry her. Perfect. It doesn't mean it didn't cost Boaz. It did. It always cost. Redemption is characterized by self-sacrifice and generosity. That's what Boaz was, self-sacrificing and generous in every way. And redemption requires a connection between the redeemer and the redeemed. There's no way that Boaz could have been in that role if he had not been related to Naomi's husband. In other words, he had to have some connection. As we turn our hearts toward communion, think about this when it comes to redemption. Jesus Christ, he redeems those in trouble. And there's no one else to help us. His rescue is no less important today than it was 2,000 years ago. And let me just encourage you, when we face the world that's gone chaotic around us, it is no less chaotic today than it has been throughout history. It just may be more chaotic than you remember it. But Jesus came into a chaos to bring redemption. It's for those in trouble. Redemption is costly for the Redeemer. It cost Jesus his life. The costliest gift God could offer was his only son for our salvation. 
Redemption is characterized by self-sacrifice and, and generosity. Jesus graciously, obediently gave his life for us. He gave his life for us, to give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Redemption requires a connection. It requires a connection. Jesus had to be human. He had to be a human, not an angel. He had to be a human. He had to die a human death to be a human's substitute. And he had to be God so that the payment would be sufficient. When we come to communion, we remember. Jesus would say, do this in remembrance of me. He would also say that the bread was his body. I've come, I've come like you. I've come like you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it says in 1 Corinthians, which I'll read in just a moment, that as we do this, this act of worship, we're remembering what Jesus has done and it says we proclaim his death until he comes again. What Jesus did on the cross is as certain as his resurrection and that means that what God is accomplishing through that is absolutely certain also. And so what that leaves us is today, in between his death and our complete salvation. And these two things are so certain that it should fuel our conviction to live obediently today. Jesus said this in John 14, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Daily obedience brings into focus the risen Christ. It gives us great comfort. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, let me ask you to remember just a few things. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He was being asked to reduce not only the 10 commandments, but some 613 commandments. We can overly complicate Christianity. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. To love God fully and your neighbor as yourself. As we come to the table, how we love each other is so central to Christianity. We can talk about the complexities of various doctrines. We can talk about the implications in society and politics. We can talk about all kinds of things. But if we don't have love for one another, then we have shot ourselves in the foot. Jesus would say, the whole world's going to know that you have love. I mean, that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. The difficulty of Christianity is often lived out in the daily obediences of extending and receiving forgiveness. The practice, the very difficult practice of reconciliation. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Would you forgive me? Yes, may we be reconciled. Yes, 
This is where it's played out. That's why Jesus would say, if you are coming to the altar to bring a gift to God and you know that you have a brother or sister that has something against you, leave that at the altar and go and deal with your your broken relationship. So I don't know where you are today. If there's a relationship that you need to mend, but most of us have one or two. A friend, a child, a spouse. Don't go through this day without mending that relationship. Don't go through this day withholding forgiveness that's been offered to you and enjoying the all-consuming bitterness that will creep up over you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 reads as follows. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that his dearest friends that he had walked with for years betrayed him. In that moment of heartbrokenness, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And the apostles adds, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death to whom? To each other. To whom? To yourself. You proclaim the Lord's death. And what we should experience with communion is a communion with God and the community where we are in love with each other, forgiving and receiving, apologizing and receiving and moving forward. Our table is open. If you're here as a visitor and you're a Christian, I invite you to come. You can get up, exit to the right, make your ways to the table and go back. Let me close this with a word of prayer, close this part of our service. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from the Old Testament to help us live out a new life in Christ. We prepare our hearts. We come before you and we ask you, Lord, to show us the places where we need to offer forgiveness, where we need to receive it, where we need to extend the love that you've asked us to give to others. Lord, we wanna wanna be like you. So work that in us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, make your way to the tables. Please take the elements back to your seat and we will take them together. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.